0: Episode 9, The Roman Lake. Shells whistle through the air, shattering the ancient stone, the bedrock on which western civilization was founded. Stukas dive, strafe, circle and dive again, but their truck gets through. They're safe. Then he hears the engine cough, splutter weakly, and finally, go quiet. The truck rolls to a stop. He climbs out of the back and looks up at the radiant blue of the Greek sky. It's beautiful. It's his first time out of New Zealand. He was so excited to go overseas. He'd hoped to see the Parthenon, to see all the things he'd read about in stories as a boy. His reverie is broken. There's a man looking under the hood. He's shouting back that they're out of gas, not something they can fix. They're going to have to walk back to the evacuation point on Peloponnese. Then they hear the rumble of another engine, several. They're moving fast. Just over the hill, plumes of dust mar the perfect sky. Trucks fill with fuel barrels. The soldiers around him shout and wave, but the trucks just drive past. A few men leap onto bumpers and cling for dear life. But he stands there. He can't understand it. Surely they can spare three minutes to get an entire squad moving again. He looks up. No planes. He doesn't even hear the dull thump of artillery anymore. There's no immediate danger. Why? Then it dawns on him. Their retreat has become a rout. Welcome to The Finest Half Hour, read by Richard Cutland, written by Jim Jager, and brought to you with the generous help of Wargaming. After the Battle of Britain, Germany and England are at a stalemate. Britain controls the waves. Germany controls the continent. The mighty Wehrmacht can't get at the British Isles and the British army is still far too weak to even attempt a landing in Western Europe. So the duel between these mighty nations will have to be played out elsewhere. But where exactly will be determined by the minor players? In this moment, the battle between fascism and democracy will be decided, as much by pride, bribes and misbegotten loyalty as any sense of grand strategy. This week, the war moves south to the Mediterranean. Egypt, September 1940. A searing wind blows across the lone coast road. They march, to victory, to glory. His black shirt sticks to his chest. It's not the best for desert war, but he's proud of it. It shows that he's a fascist, a true believer in Mussolini's cause, not like these doubters from the regular army. Well, soon they'll conquer Egypt and they'll all see how right he was. We often think of Italy as the constant ally of the Third Reich during World War II, but as German troops marched into Warsaw, Italy stayed on the sidelines. When German tanks emerged out of the Ardennes forest to begin their race across France, Italy bided its time, waiting to see who the victor might be before it committed itself to war. But Mussolini, Italy's dictator, saw himself as a great conqueror, a mighty leader restoring to the Italian people the glory of Rome. His ambitions were great and he looked on with jealousy as Hitler scored victory after victory for the Third Reich. Ever the opportunist, as France was on its knees, he declared war on them, throwing in his lot with Germany and desperately rushing to get troops into action so he could claim part of the spoils when France fell. But he made a critical mistake. He assumed the war he had just gotten into would soon be at an end. He thought that with France knocked out, Britain would surely sue for peace, and when they did, he would be there, demanding their colonies in North Africa. So he raced in, with little planning, little preparation for war. But England was not so easily defeated, and so the once peaceful Mediterranean Sea became a new theatre of war. The Mediterranean was organised along strange lines, though. The British controlled the east-west access from their bases in Gibraltar, Malta and Egypt, while the Italians controlled the north-south route, straight down the middle of the Mediterranean, with their possession of Italy, Sicily and Libya, which meant that British and Italian lines of supply literally crossed. At first, this would seem to be far less of a problem for Italy. Their 170-mile hop from Italy to Tunisia was entirely under friendly air cover, and their navy had the advantage of only having to focus on the Mediterranean whereas British shipping had to travel thousands of miles to make it from England to Malta or Cairo. And much of that journey occurred too far from English airfields to have any air support if there wasn't a carrier nearby. But the Italians had other issues that the British didn't have to wrestle with. While their fleet was large enough and modern enough to pose a real threat to the Royal Navy in the Mediterranean, its crews lacked experience and fuel shortages meant that much of it was often sitting uselessly at anchor. Its coordination with the Italian Air Force was also, in the politest way I can put it, mind-bogglingly bad. If a captain needed air support, they had to pass the request up the chain until it got to the Super Marina, Naval Command in Rome, who would then contact the Super Aereo, Air Command, who would proceed to pass the request back down the chain until it got to the nearest airbase. Needless to say, this reduced the effectiveness of Italian air cover, They also suffered from the fact that their ports in North Africa were nowhere near as modern as those in Egypt, meaning that Italian convoys were often limited to two or three ships because that's all their harbours could handle. And then there's Mussolini. In his rush to get into the war before the Germans won it and stole all the glory, he didn't think to have anyone notify his merchant ships of what was going on. So on the day Italy declared war, nearly a third of its entire merchant fleet was seized in foreign ports. Oops! But even as the battle to supply far-flung colonies raged along the pale blue waters of the Mediterranean, a storm was brewing elsewhere. Mussolini wanted the jewel of the ancient Roman Empire, Egypt. He wanted the Suez Canal. He wanted access to the oil fields of the Middle East. But most of all, he wanted to establish Italian dominance of North Africa. He ordered his commanders to attack. He had almost a quarter of a million men in Libya, compared to the British 36,000 in Egypt. He was confident of success. His officers, less so. Preparations began swimmingly. Italian forces in the area accidentally shot down their own commander. The most senior person in Libya, the person who most intimately knew the terrain and the troops, was now dead. And, for his replacement, Mussolini chose a guy known primarily for using poison gas on the Ethiopians. He was even more timid and defeatist than the fellow he replaced. He told Mussolini he didn't think they could win. Mussolini, incensed, afraid that he might not have his conquest before the Germans won the war, ordered the attack anyway. The attack was planned for July 15th to coincide with the German invasion of England. But since that never happened, the attack was cancelled. The date was moved back to August the 22nd. Then someone realised that August was a terrible time to fight in the desert. So the date was finally moved to September the 9th. But the troops got lost in the desert and planes had to be sent to go find them. Finally, on the 13th, it was time. Italian troops pushed into Egypt. The British fell back harassing the fascist army as they went. For three days, things went well for the Italians. No major fighting occurred. The Italian armour was held to the pace of the infantry, but by the 16th, they had made it 60 miles into Egypt, to the small coastal town of Sidi Barani, and here, they just stopped. Balbo, the commander of the Italian forces, had convinced himself that the British had far more troops in the area than they really had. Fearful of fighting a modern army, he ordered his army to dig in. And there they sat, and sat, and sat. Meanwhile, things were heating up in other parts of the Mediterranean. Greece, October 1940. Wind whipped through the mountain pass. Snow left him half blind, and the cold left him half numb. His rifle had been made before the First World War, and the sights was a little bent. Food was meagre, sleep was rare, but none of that mattered because he was Greek, defending his country from the fascist invaders. Frustrated with the lack of progress in North Africa, and nettled by Hitler's takeover of Romania, which he'd wanted for Italy, Mussolini ordered the invasion of Greece. He kept his allies and even some of his own generals in the dark. This was to be the swift, easy conquest that he'd wanted. It would shower him with glory and make up for the setbacks elsewhere. Most of his advisors agreed. Greece would fall in weeks. The invasion was set for the 28th of October, and immediately things started to go wrong. What little planning had been done for the invasion assumed that the majority of the Greek forces would be tied up defending against the possible Bulgarian invasion. But the Bulgarians declared their neutrality and the Greeks brought all their forces to bear against the Italian incursion. The Italians no longer had the numerical superiority they'd hoped for, and Mussolini had just let hundreds of thousands of troops go home to help with the harvest. But with high hopes, the Italian forces pressed on. The whole world expected Greece to collapse overnight. Instead, Italian forces almost instantly became bogged down in the mountainous terrain along the Greek border. They made it mere miles before they were stopped. Soon, all along the line, Italian commanders are calling for their troops to take up defensive positions while they wait for reinforcements. Then things went from a fiasco to a disaster. The Greeks counter attacked fighting with a ferocity that takes the Italians totally by surprise. Reeling, the Italians retreat. Soon they're back where they started, driven to the very border of Greece. Then the Greeks attack again. The Italians are driven back even further. The Greeks now occupy parts of Albania. Some of the Italian generals even talk of suing for peace. Hitler calls Mussolini, who blames the situation on a thousand different things, but says they're winning the end. Hitler, exasperated because he never wanted a fight with Greece in the first place, and certainly not one that F.D. Roosevelt might use to push the American people a little closer to entering the war, decides it's time to do just this thing himself. He orders the Wehrmacht to march on Greece. Meanwhile, back in Africa. Egypt, December 1940. A thin line of sweat calms a valley into the sand caking his face. His tongue is thick, swollen with thirst. The man next to him is crossing himself over and over, whispering Hail Marys. Two men in the corner of the truck are having a muted conversation. Everyone else is silent. Even under the canvas it's too hot. When they tell you that it'll be a great adventure and that you'll see the world, return home a hero, they never tell you about the heat. The men have stopped talking. The only sound is the sand under the tires and the quiet Hail Marys. He wishes he was back with his family in Naples. The ground shakes, the truck bucks. He feels it almost before he hears it, an explosion. Men spill out the back of the truck. He piles out with them, shading his eyes against the sun. The truck in front of them is on its side, cab burning, its cargo of water spilling uselessly into the desert. Men are scattering in all directions. Another explosion, the ruins of a man Severed, tossed like some grotesque doll, sails limply through the air. A wet, dull noise marks the man's return to earth. He doesn't even scream. Somewhere a rifle cracks. The British are coming. Sir Archibald Wavell, the commander of the British forces in North Africa, was a cautious man. He knew he was vastly outnumbered by the Italian army arrayed against him. If it were up to him, he'd have just let them keep the small stretch of desert that they'd taken rather than risk his precious few men and machines to try and take it back. But Churchill had been hounding him for weeks. They needed to take the fight to the Axis, and the only place they could do that was in Egypt. So he began plans for a probing raid. For all his caution, he wasn't a man to limit success. His initial plans had modest objectives but he let his commanders prepare in case some opportunities arose that could be exploited. The plan was to attack the fortified camps that surrounded Sidi Barani. Indian and Australian troops would make up much of the initial assault. Air cover and artillery would be ample, or at least all they had. Even a few gunboats would pitch in. If they could, they pushed push the Italians out of their defensive positions, but if, after five days nothing came of it, oh well. Then they'd just pull back and let things return to how they'd been. On December the 9th, in the early morning, far before sunrise, the attack began. Indian units attacked from the east. The Italians fired flares to light up the night sky. The fighting was fierce. The Indian units began to retreat. A great barrage of artillery rained down, keeping the Italians at bay. The Italians had driven off the first wave but it was all a feint. The real attack came from the West. Great hulking Matilda IIs, whose armor no Italian anti-tank gun could penetrate, smashed through the stone walls of the fort. Fast-moving brain carriers dashed through the gaps and disgorged their infantry, which swarmed over the fort. The Italians were caught totally by surprise. The camps surrounding Sidi Barani were reduced. Tens of thousands of Italian soldiers were captured. A huge part of the fascist army's armour and artillery was left behind. But this was just the prelude to the real fight. A massive attack on the Italian stronghold of Sidi Barani itself. It was the morning of the 10th. Bitter desert cold. A dust storm whipped the coast. Anything more than 100 feet away was just a shadow in the sand. The fighting was close and personal. Artillery rained down on both sides. The assault was a grinding stalemate. All of a sudden, thousands of blackshirts, fascist street thugs that Mussolini had given a position in the army, stood up as if about to counterattack, then surrendered. The Italian line collapsed. British divisions, led by the Australians, charged into Libya, smashing Italian garrisons and taking tens of thousands of prisoners. As Allied tanks broke down or were knocked out in the battle, The Australians painted kangaroos on the side of Italian armour and pushed on in captured Italian tanks. They destroyed the fortress at Bardia and surrounded the ancient city of Tobruk. They drove the Italians back along the coast road and sent a detachment racing through the desert to cut them off south of Benghazi. Thousands more surrendered. The Italian army in North Africa was in tatters. But that was as far as they could go. The British supply line was pushed to its limit. Their tanks were breaking down. They were running off captured fuel and water. Their men had been fighting tirelessly for almost two months straight. They never expected to drive so far into Libya. And so, they began to dig in. Their offensive was at an end. They had captured over 100,000 Italian soldiers and, with less than 40,000 men, crippled Italy's offensive capability in North Africa. But as their offensive ended, two things happened which would change the fortune of the British in the desert. Churchill ordered men pulled out of Libya to aid the beleaguered Greeks. And Hitler ordered that a new army be raised, the Africa Corps. Greece, April 1941. Trucks, supplies and guns lay scattered along the road. Some destroyed, most abandoned. There are few bodies. The fighting was over long before they'd fled this far. They'd arrived just weeks before, the Australians and the New Zealanders. They'd been so proud, in such high spirits. The men she'd seen leave here on the great British ships were different men, broken men. She sits down on the road and looks at one of the abandoned rifles. Her name is Iro Konstantapulu. She's 13, a schoolchild. And in this moment, she realises that the Greek people can count on no one else to fight for Greece. In less than four years, she'll be dead at the hands of a Nazi firing squad. Greek troops are pushed to their limit. Supplies and ammunition are running low. Reserves are almost depleted. Every soldier able to hold a rifle is in Albania pushing back the Italian invaders. Then, disaster strikes. On April the 6th, Nazi forces pour across the Bulgarian border, creating a second front in Greece. With the entire army locked in combat in the West, there is no one to meet the new threat. German troops roll in, almost unopposed. Churchill, out of a sense of honour, almost anachronistic in this age of merciless total war, orders troops out of North Africa to help his last ally on the continent. But it's far too little, far too late. The Germans have near total air superiority. They've completely outflanked the Greek forces. Collapse is inevitable. Soon the Greek army is in full retreat, the small contingent of dominion forces with them. For the Greeks, there is no salvation. There is only surrender, imprisonment, and in the end, often death. But for the forces of the British Empire, there was still the sea. It's a race to the coast, A heroic evacuation is mounted by the Royal Navy under the guns of the Luftwaffe. Many ships are lost, but almost 80% of the expeditionary force is withdrawn to Crete. For many though, this is not the end of their ordeal, it is just the beginning. Crete, May 20th, 1941. The three engines of the JU-52 roar in his ears, muffling the sounds of gunfire below. He is waiting for the signal For his turn, his turn to jump. There it is. He leaps forward, out into the clear, cloudless blue. For the briefest moment, he forgets everything and just looks. He feels the joy of freefall, sees the breathtaking panorama of Crete and the Aegean Sea. Then he sees puffs of black smoke, hears the dying engine of a plane careening from the sky. It sails past him, cockpit on fire. He hears the screams of men inside. One flaming body comes spinning from it, trying to jump. Another tumbles helplessly through the open sky. He has to focus. He tries to put it out of his mind as he opens his chute. He feels the pull and the kick. He starts to glide slowly, peacefully down. But he can't maneuver. He is being pulled towards a grove of trees. He kicks his feet. Thrashes, trying to will himself away from the branches. Then... Impact. His parachute is a spider web of cord tying him to the tree. Men are coming, New Zealanders. He tries to twist free, he can barely move. But just with the tips of his fingers, if he stretches just a little more, and he has it. He has his knife. He hacks desperately at the cords which bind him. Then he is falling again. He lands hard, he starts to limp away. But then the mortars begin to fall. Great clods of earth kicked into the air. Showers of splinters lacerated his face. He tries to limp away as fast as he can. But he could hear them, the New Zealanders drawing closer. They'd seen where he'd fallen. All he has is a pistol. He looks around. He can see where the canister with his rifle had fallen. It's too far. He turns to face his foes. Then he glanced down at the pistol in his hand. All of a sudden, the whole world was absurd. The New Zealanders never understood why he was just sitting in the dirt, laughing when they found him. <laughs> Hitler decided that the British couldn't be left in control of Crete. Its airstrips were just close enough to threaten the Romanian oil fields, the heartblood of the German war machine. But the British still controlled the sea, making an amphibious assault nearly impossible. So the Luftwaffe offered another option, something never before done in the history of warfare, a full-scale airborne invasion. Tens of thousands of paratroopers would be dropped onto Crete. Their objective? Seize the airfields. If that could be done, they could be reinforced by troops flying out of Greece. They would drop in four groups, all around the island to maximise the element of surprise. But little did they know there was no element of surprise. The codebreakers at Bletchley Park had deciphered a message detailing the operation. The Greek and British forces would be ready for the attack. The first day was a massacre. Paratroopers were shot out of the sky. Those that were lucky enough to land were wiped out before they had time to gather. The few that slipped by the British and Greek forces were attacked by local police or simply shot by armed civilians. But the defenders had to intercept the Germans on their way down. In their flight from the mainland, they'd been forced to leave behind most of their heavy equipment. They had woefully few tanks and little in the way of artillery. Even their anti-aircraft weaponry left much to be desired. If the Germans got a toehold on the island, they'd be in dire straits. By the end of the first day, though, it looked like Crete would hold. None of the four German landing groups had achieved their objectives. But beside tanks and artillery and anti-aircraft guns, the defenders also lacked radios. And, as the day came to a close, the battalion charged with holding the main airfield lost contact with a neighbouring battalion. Believing them to have been wiped out, they withdrew overnight to re-secure their flank, leaving the airfield undefended. The Germans immediately seized it. With an airfield to reinforce from, the balance of power shifted. The island could not be held. The navy, once again, shuttled vital British forces off the doomed island. Again they did so with the Luftwaffe dominating the air. Losses were severe. Trying to hold Crete had been costly. More than 10,000 Commonwealth troops were captured. Equipment desperately needed in North Africa fell into German hands. And the British fleet in the Mediterranean had been crippled. But seizing Crete had been costly too. Because, while the Allies gained a newfound respect for airborne assault and rushed to create paratrooper forces of their own, the German paratrooper force was ruined. Never again would Hitler dare risk using them for a major offensive. He declared the age of the paratrooper over, expending in Crete a tool which might have been better spent elsewhere. The war in North Africa made two small British outposts targets of the utmost importance. Malta and Gibraltar. Gibraltar was the key to the Mediterranean. Without it, British shipping would be locked out, unable to make the passage past the pillars of Hercules. If it could be seized, British North Africa could be strangled. But Gibraltar lays just beyond the border of Spain, and Spain, though sympathetic to the fascist cause, was neutral. Hitler couldn't just march armies through Spain, though he drew up plans to. He didn't want another enemy to the west. He didn't want a potential landing point for British forces. So instead, he tried to coax the Spanish government to join the war, or at least seize Gibraltar. But all his efforts failed, for three reasons. One, the British were paying millions of dollars in bribes to just about everyone they could find in the Spanish government to push for staying out of the war. Two, The guy Hitler sent to convince the Spanish was actually an ardent anti-Nazi who advised Franco, the Spanish dictator, to make ludicrous demands that Hitler was sure to refuse. And three, Franco didn't really want to enter the war. He had just put Spain through a devastating civil war and was still consolidating his power. Spain was in no shape to fight. So Gibraltar, against what seems in hindsight like impossible odds, stayed in British hands. Meanwhile, Malta, that ancient seat of a knightly order, came under siege. Day and night it was bombed. Axis ships tried to cut it off from Britain. And yet, it endured. Heroic blockade runs were made to resupply it. Desperate sorties were made to defend it. And in the end, it held. Hitler probably could have taken Malta if he'd spent his paratroopers there instead of Crete. It might have even capitulated if German planes had remained to continue to choke it off from British supplies instead of being sent east to Russia. But neither of those things happened, so it remained, in the words of Churchill, an unsinkable aircraft carrier at the enemy's doorstep, a base from which the Allies could attack supply lines in North Africa, mount air raids against the European mainland, or, someday, serve as a stepping stone for an invasion of Italy itself. So join us next week to see just how that carrier is used when the Desert Fox gets to North Africa.